Good evening, everybody. Uh, it's a delight to be with you, and I just want to say, starting off, how wonderful it is to come amongst brethren that are so receptive, um, coming in the, the doors in the back, just receive so many smiling faces. Uh, Brother Flat's prayer, really appreciate that, uh, an encouragement there. And Brother Tony has been an encouragement uh, to me over the years, and I have picked his brain more often than... Uh, to talk about in dealing with mission work and, and church issues. Uh, tonight, dealing with a very uh, important topic, any Bible topic is, we're dealing with uh, the, the idea of the communion, the concept of the Lord's Supper, and dealing with when we come together in fellowship. Isn't it a wonderful blessing that we have that we can come together and fellowship with one another and commune with one another? Isn't that great? Um, I look forward to it. It's, it's a day I look forward to. I look forward to the rest of the days of the week as well. But also that, that day in particular, that first day of the week deal. Because it's the time when we commemorate the Lord's death. We're thinking on some things that were heinous, uh, that were atrocious, uh, some things that are unimaginable. And it's a time to really reflect on ourselves as well as we take the communion. We engage in that. And so tonight, as I begin, I want to bring up a few verses that we are aware of. Uh, one of the things that I've seen within Christendom, as some people put it, uh, within the Christian realm, is there's a lot of people out there looking for an experience, an experience um, in their religion. They have to have an experience. Uh, that quickly, brethren, that quickly becomes idolatrous. Very quickly, a uh, few passages I'll just mention in the beginning by, by a springboard and what we're going to be talking about tonight. But Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25 both state, There's a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Uh, Proverbs 28, if you all want to write these down, I'm sorry, I don't have a PowerPoint with uh, But Proverbs 28.26, you know, the fool trusteth in his own heart. Uh, and so there is this extreme we can go to where we start looking for our feelings and our emotions and how we feel about things and the danger there. The courage that the prophet Jeremiah had to make that statement in his context in Jeremiah 10, 23, Oh Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It's not a man that walks to direct his own steps. I, I know it. And he's stating this within the realm of so many people turning other directions, trusting in self. He was courageous in that, in making that statement. In Jeremiah 17 and verse 9, the, the picture of the heart is its a deceitful thing. We can deceive ourselves quickly. And it's so easy to believe a lie and react to it as if it were truth, as we see in the response to Joseph's death in Genesis 37. And when the father finally learned the truth in Genesis 45, he wasn't quick to receive that truth, that his son lived. It was slower. And so we need to be patient with people as well as they come to learn more about God's pure, unadulterated truth in regards to the communion um, in any aspect of the Word of God. Matthew 26. Matthew 26 and verse 28. I, my mind goes here often thinking about the blood of Jesus, uh, thinking about Him reinterpreting the Passover back in Exodus 21, 23, and 24, the things that Moses deals with. And if you remember the picture back in those three chapters 
of where Moses with the fellowship offering. He is uh, he burns up the fat as God's portion, and there's at least four hundred pounds worth of beef. I like the sound of that. Four hundred pounds worth of beef to eat. And so it's going to be a community eating this thing because they had a limited amount of time to do that. Moses sprinkles the blood on the people and he makes the statement, this is the blood of the covenant. Who does that sound like? What Jesus says in Matthew 26, 28. This is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. So Jesus is reinterpreting the Passover in the context of the new covenant. And that's what we're under today, and we want to discuss that and some of the things that we need to think about. Let me go back to this experience thing for a moment. Brethren, experience, experience without the word of the living God becomes idolatry. I want you to catch me in saying that. But the word of God only being used as a rule book and from an academic standpoint and that's it, apart from experience, becomes a dead letter if we do not apply it. The God that we serve desires intimacy with us. In John chapter 17 and verse 3, we know this wonderful prayer our Lord prays. And in the context of John 17, 3, it says here that this is eternal life. If somebody asked you, hey, hey, Daniel, what's eternal life? Or somebody asked you uh, when you walked out of here this evening, I know mean, y'all talk about eternal life a lot. What is it? What is eternal life? And somebody might say, well, it's living faithfully here on the earth. Yes, we're walking in the light. Uh, the blood of Christ is cleansing us. We're in God's grace. And we're living faithfully so that we can be with the Lord in the final analysis. And that's where their mind goes when they think of eternal life. When we turn to John 17.3, there's something very powerful here. This is eternal life, that you may know the one true God and His Son whom He hath sent. And the term know there in the original language is not just from an academic standpoint. The term here is intimacy. And when I think about this, brethren, when I think about taking the communion, Boy, engaging in the Lord's Supper with my brethren. I have, think about this, the Hebrews writer shows us, brethren, that Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, our high priest, has blazed a trail for us right into the very presence of God in our worship. How does that make you feel? That, that this has happened. That this is something so wonderful to think about indeed that this is indeed what Jesus has done on our behalf. Is he's blazed the trail for us right into the very presence of God in worship. Now, I'm going to tell you where my mind goes when I think about the communion. I think of holy ground moments in life. Can you imagine what Moses' response was in Exodus 3, 1 through 10 as he's walking? Has anybody ever done the double take? Something catches your attention and it's like you almost break your neck the second time you look at it. Anybody ever done that before? I do that at certain buffets sometimes. Well, the thing is, Moses is walking. I hope my voice makes it tonight, guys. Moses is walking in the desert, and he sees this bush burning, and it's not consumed. And what is going on over here? <laughs> you know. And so he goes over to see, and then the voice from the bush, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes. Take off your sandals. Why? Why do I need to do that? For the ground on which you stand 
is holy ground. Now, what, what does that mean? That was, was that just parcel of territory intrinsically more holy than other parcels of territory and land in the area? I mean, God's omnipresent, is He not? I mean, what you say to consider that He's everywhere, so what's, what is it about this? Wouldn't you say that there are instances where God is more involved in the moment than others? And I think that's what we see there in Exodus 3, 1 through 10. Give you another example, Isaiah 6. And this is after the king Uzziah died, and Isaiah has this vision. And I'm trying to imagine the reaction of Isaiah to this. <laughs> and the statement in the King James, how it brings it out, is, is powerful. But it's the same year that Uzziah dies. King Uzziah dies. Isaiah has this vision in Isaiah 6, and he sees the Lord high and lifted up. And the seraphim, their wings are covering the appearance of, of the Lord. Holy, holy. Holy is mentioned there in regards to our God. And when Isaiah saw God, he saw himself. You know what he's saying? You see it there. I mean, it's, what's his reaction? As soon as he sees this holy God, I, I'm undone. From a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Mine eyes have seen God. I've seen the Lord of hosts. And so he's undone. Let me ask you, do you ever feel... I'm, guys, I'm guilty of this. Sometimes I think for years, what I, I had a punch card Christianity. Where I thought that I, because I came within proximity of a church building and came within proximity of God's people, I was good to go when I left. You know, <laughs> And I could somehow walk around the streets. I'm a Christian. I attend church every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. But I'm thinking in regards to these moments of Isaiah, this moment of Moses, and then we think under the new blood-sealed covenant. When it is time for that moment on the first day of the week to partake of the unleavened bread and to partake of the fruit of the vine. How do you feel? Are we simply offering prayers that are kind of formal recitations rather than heartfelt words sent heavenward? I've done that. I've often offered the formula prayer to God and used Jesus' name as a talisman right there at the very end. Oh, that, that was easy. Rather than pouring our hearts out. And guys, I want you to think about this. That time of worship that we are spending time with God. It is, it is a time where God, we don't see Him, but we know this by faith. It's a time that He loves on us. And brethren, we love on Him. We've come to do just that as we take the communion. I want to mention a few points uh, this evening. This holy, holy moment. I just mentioned to go the holy ground moments. One of the key things that I tell a lot of young Christians, they'll come up to me and say, Daniel, now, I've got a question. How do I develop this intimate relationship with Jesus? How do I do this with uh, the Lord's Supper moment? How is that possible? A lot of things come to mind. One of the passages, two in particular, that I always think of are 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's the first one. If you want to mark that down. And guys, let me say this. One of the biggest mistakes you can make I want you to hear this from me, the fellow from Woodbury. 
One of the biggest mistakes you can make is to come in and just open the top of your noggin and let the preacher funnel it in. You check me out with the Word of God. It is the standard. But what we find in 2 Corinthians 3.18 is this vivid picture of how a transformation begins to happen in our lives. And it is only when we are beginning to behold Jesus. You notice that term? If you have the King James Version, behold It's the same word that we find in John chapter 1 and verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And the idea of behold in the original language is putting Jesus under a microscope. My wife loves to take pictures. And let me say this, if we go on a family outing, I'm not a big fan, and that's terrible. Because this means a lot to her. I'm trying to get better about supporting her in this. And I've, I made a comment one day when we were out for a cookout. Okay, let's everybody get together for a picture. And I, I made the snide comment. I said, well, we could enjoy this moment or ruin it by taking pictures. And she gave me the eyebrow, you know. I was like, oh, boy. My wife, when she takes pictures, I've watched her do this. She looks at those snapshots of people. And here's what she does. I will be sitting on the couch with her, maybe watching a sport or something, and she's flipping through a book, and she goes, Hey, I just now know, I've been studying this for a while. Doesn't so-and-so look just like so-and-so? It's sad to say, you know what I've done? Yeah, uh-huh, okay, all right, that's good. And I'll go back to what I'm doing. And I feel so bad about that, you know. Uh, she loves that. Guys, God is calling us to look at these snapshots of the life of Jesus in the Gospels. That is the only way transformation is going to take place. It doesn't happen to, well, I'm going to do my daily Bible reading, uh, my verse for the evening, unless we're meditating upon it. Remember the blessed man in Psalm 1? You know that picture of meditation? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon his law doth he meditate how often? Day and night. It's the picture, meditate here, brace yourself. It's the picture of a cow chewing its cud. You are getting all you can out of that Word of God. He values that. Brethren, when we come together and we think about the body of Jesus the Christ, the Word incarnate, What starts in my mind is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Because this goes back to the incarnation, the Word becoming flesh. And I want you to think about this with me, brethren. Think about this, not just with the the scourging and the cross. Think about what Jesus gave up to pursue us into the chaos of the sinful Adamic world. What He gave up. You know, enjoying that community. God is a communal God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And He comes in this form. Now get this. The incarnation, the picture is not only did He come to be with us, brethren, He came to be as us. To experience what we experience. My mind immediately goes to Hebrews 4, verses 14 through 16. Because this high priest that, wow, never sinned. He never, 
He never did. He was tempted in every way just like we were, but he never sinned. And I had somebody not too long ago say, uh, now Daniel, that, make, that makes no sense to me. I said, well, what, what is it, bud? What is it that doesn't make sense? Let's talk about it. And they said, well, Daniel, if he's never sinned, it says here that he sympathizes with us. How does he sympathize with us if he's never sinned? And here was my question. Who could sympathize better than the being who can see how far temptation can pull you and never give in to it? None of us has seen it to the level Jesus has. And that's why he can sympathize. When I think about my Lord and Savior, the Incarnation, Him coming to experience life with us, to suffer with us, guys, looking at the ministry of Jesus Himself, what He endured, controversy after controversy, it was, a day, it was the game of the day. Let's track him. Let's get him in something. We got, we got him on this one. Especially with what's the greatest commandment in the law and what Jesus dealt with there. Powerful, powerful statement. And let me say this. If when we're taking the Lord's Supper, if it is not principally based upon that first and greatest command, we've missed it. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Brethren, let me say this. I'm going to deal with this passage as we get into a little bit further into the communion. Loving God with all of your heart. One of the things you do when you look at biblical exegesis and study and looking at these words, loving God with all of your emotion. Now, brethren, this is something else. This doesn't mean we get lost in emotionalism. This doesn't mean that I do a, a backflip in church and blame it on the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what that means. But brethren, let me say this. I would not give you this much for a religion you can't feel. God wants us to feel. He wants us to have emotions. Our Lord had them. And we see that throughout the snapshots in the Gospels. As we behold those things, we see those things. So as we're taking the Lord's Supper, emotion needs to be present. If we're sitting just going through the motions, what does that say? Loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul. Now, this is the totality of our being. Soul sometimes referring to the spiritual aspect, but other times I believe as we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 21, eight souls were saved by water, the totality of the being. I think that's what's being referred to in the context of Matthew 22, 37. And when he brings that up, that I'm loving him with the totality of my being, and I bring this into the communion environment, what this says, brethren, is I cannot pigeonhole my Christianity. And we're doing that in 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. <laughs> that means I can't have holy war with my wife when we walk out on Sunday and walk in and go, how's everybody doing? I've, I've watched this happen where people come together and they're bumping shells. They're not confessing their faults, James 5.16, the things they're struggling with. And they think, I can go out here and be this way and act this way during the week and then I can come take the communion on Sunday. Loving God with all of your soul means we don't pigeonhole our Christianity. We're either a Christian or we're not. And then finally, loving God with all of your mind. Brethren, I'm an old country boy. You've heard my accent already tonight. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you this. I was one of these students in school and still am. Where the rest of my, the student body, they've gotten something quickly. 
Two days later, I'll get it. I'm one of these, it's like light bulb. Some of them make sarcastic remarks. That's right, Daniel, about time. What, what are you, where were you? you know. God has given us Bibles and brains, and he expects us to use both. So intellectual preparation as we take the Lord's Supper is vital. Alan Webster tracks. Do you guys have those here? Anybody heard of Brother Alan Webster? Okay. If you've ever studied the scourging of Jesus, as I behold that, and I've done this, I'm so guilty of this. John chapter 19, verses 1 and following. Pilate has Jesus scourged due to the bloodthirstiness of the Jews. I mean, they were relentless. He knew if I don't do something about this, it's going to be the end of me and my family. So he thought a scourging would suffice. The Romans referred to the scourging as the little death. And they referred to the cross as the big death. Let me say this, brethren. The scourging by no means was a little death. Isaiah, as you study through Isaiah, you read these statements about he would have been unrecognizable. He wouldn't have recognized him after the scourging is the picture. And as you study the scourging, what you, and I've heard people say, well, they did 39 licks. No, that was the Jewish rule. Who scourged our Lord? Was it the Jews or the Romans? The Romans. They had these gentlemen. It was their occupation. I wonder what kind of people they were. They were called lictors. And they had this whip, and they had this, y'all studied this before, the cat of nine tails, and in those tails you had sheep bone, you had sharp objects that would rip into the flesh, dig in, and when they pulled it away, it ripped flesh off. And what they often did, history has shown this, to people who were going to be victimized by the Roman scourging, they would position them in such a way that it would flare their shoulder blades. And they would smack it behind them for a while. And people that were about to endure the scourging would become cotton-mouthed, awaiting that first blow, and they would just taunt them for a while. Think about this, brethren. If anybody in here has ever had shingles, painful. If anybody in here has ever had a bad abrasion, a scrape, it hurts. Jesus, I looking at some of Brother Brad Harrop's stuff. And he talked about how he believed Jesus suffered something in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed in the very shadow of the cross. In Matthew chapter 26, verses 39 and 42, suffered something known as hematidrosis. I may have pronounced that wrong. And this is where due to extreme stress, the capillaries burst and blood comes through the pores. The Bible says he sweat as if it were what? Great drops of blood. didn't say it was blood, but most doctors have looked at the extreme stress Jesus would have been under. It would have made sense for blood to have been mixed with sweat. And what that does to the flesh is it makes it so tender, tender to touch. He already got any sleep the night before. Didn't eat anything. So you imagine how he felt when he was scourged. And so... The first blow to the back is its position would have popped the back open. And then the, the point here, brother, think about this. The focus wasn't just the back, the legs, the groin, the face, the eyes of our Lord. 
After all this had happened, Pilate brings him back before the crowd, and what does he say? The very now think about this: the Gospel of John, starting off, beholding him, we beheld him. What does Pilate say? Behold the man. Look at him. And he thought, surely this is enough. It wasn't. What did they cry out? Crucify him. Do away with him. Brethren, what we often focus on is the physical pain. I've done it for years. We focused on being nailed to the cross, the suffocation that took place, the fluid that would build up around the heart. We've always focused on those things. But brethren, in a six-hour period, my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ suffered the equivalency of hell for every human being on this earth. Statements of abandonment. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Grief is referred to as the conflicting mass of human emotions. Let me give you an example of this. I've talked to relatives who have watched a loved one go through a long, drawn-out process of dying with cancer. The person's a faithful Christian, but they're miserable. They're all suffering so badly. And when they, they die, not too long ago I had a lady that said, I wish she would just go on, Daniel. Daniel, I wish she would just go on. And I just listened. But as soon as she died, she wasn't prepared for what she was about to feel. And the conflicting mass of emotions was this, a feeling of abandonment. I've lost her a feeling of, of hope and pleasure because I know she's better off. Now consider this. The statements of abandonment given by our Lord, why hast thou forsaken me? And then statements of hope. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. That statement, or it is accomplished. That statement, brethren, shows that Jesus was in control the whole time. <laughs> he could have called legions of angels on his behalf. And the Hebrews writer has it depicted as God holding them back as they're trying to look over the battlements of heaven. To look into what they, they desire to see what's going on there. And I call myself a Christian. I'm a very poor one. When I look at my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and what he endured on my behalf, and when I come to the table on Sunday and I partake of that unleavened bread, do we think of his flesh? Do we think of how it was absolutely, they referred to the scourging as the equivalent of being filleted alive? Do I think of the precious blood that was shed? That we understand that without the shedding of that blood, there is no remission, Hebrews 9.22. And it's only because of that blood that we have redemption, Ephesians 1, 7, even the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. I love the picture of Ephesians 1, 8. Those of us, isn't it wonderful to know this, that as we're sitting in here tonight, what is the blood of Christ constantly doing? 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus Christ is cleansing us constantly. We have fellowship one with another. And his blood cleanses us from all of our sin. That's present tense. And that says to Daniel, you know what happens to legalistic, 
views of my salvation, they're obliterated at that. In 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And what He is saying there is, Daniel, God looks at you and says, you are a sinner saved by grace. Homologeo in the Greek, if I confess, I tell God, you're exactly right. I'm a sinner saved by grace. The Lord's Supper is a reminder that the ground at the foot of the cross is level. We are all of us fellow strugglers. None of us have arrived. And if we think we have, the transformation process has stopped in our life. One final point I want to bring up, and this lesson will be yours. On the road to Emmaus, <clears throat> you remember, I didn't realize who it was walking with them there for a little bit. Realize it's Jesus, and they go back and they eat together. They're eating with the resurrected one. And when they tell their friends later, when Jesus became known to them, watch this. He was made known to us through the breaking of bread. Brethren, do we show people that come in amongst us that Jesus is being made known to them as we commune and take the Lord's Supper? I have fallen short in all these areas that I've mentioned tonight. This lessons to Daniel first. If you're not a Christian, brethren, that's a problem. <laughs> Friends, that's a problem because there's a God that desires so deeply. Deeply enough in Acts chapter 2 and verse 23 that he had his son delivered up according to the determinate counsel in his foreknowledge. But that's something else. Before the foundation of the world, I want you to think about this with me tonight. Think about this with me. Before He ever made you, He saw you and loved you and made you. 1 John 4, God is love. Self-giving love, making us. Let's take it a step further. Before He ever created Daniel Hayes, he saw me as a flawed individual, and Daniel's going to mess it up a lot. And he loved me. And brethren, he made me. What kind of God do we serve? You're subject to the invitation tonight. You believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, except you believe that I am. He says you, you'll die in your sins, and he doesn't desire for your demise. He doesn't want it. Are you willing to repent of your sins? And the picture also there is not just, well, I'm just going to stop doing a lot of the bad stuff I've been doing. No, it's getting the right due in place. We begin this transform, allow this transformation process to start as we embrace the goal of Christianity in Romans 8.29. If anybody ever asks you, what's the goal of Christianity? What's the goal of the church? Romans 8.29. Whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Are you conforming to the image of Jesus? This should be our motive the rest of our lives, brethren. Are we willing to let people know where we stand? To let them know, I believe he is who he says he is. I'm willing to talk to you about him. Matthew 10, 32, 33 takes it to the degree that we do it with our lives for the rest of our lives. An ongoing deal. And Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 deals with that initial confession going towards salvation. And we find the Ethiopian eunuch making that in Acts 8. And then going down 
into the waters of baptism, coming in contact with the blood of Jesus the Christ, allowing Him to purchase you and you be added to the saved. Wow. And then for the rest of your life, enjoying the blessing of being motivated by that grace, 1 Corinthians 15.10, being compelled by that love, 2 Corinthians 5.14, to live for Him until we meet Him again. If you have any need at all, if you're one that's fallen away and you want to come back, there's a God in heaven that desires it. It's the picture of the prodigal son father running to meet his boy. He desires it. There are, you have a family here at Bobby Branch that desires it. They love you. Won't you come as together we stand as we sing?